0: Uh, we are going to be in the Book of Matthew today. It seems like every time I get a chance to preach, it's from it's from this book for one reason or another. But uh, it, it is a tremendous privilege uh, uh, to be a minister here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Uh, I love what I do. Uh, I love the opportunity to work with uh, the people here, to minister to the people here, and given the opportunity to preach the Word. Um, and it, it's not an easy task. I have one. I have one duty, which is to make sure that you understand whatever is written in here, and particularly the passage that's at hand. And uh, the older I get, uh, the longer I'm in the ministry, uh, the weightier the task becomes, because the more I'm understanding the value of human souls, and the more I understand the value and the weight of the Word of God and the impact that can have on your souls. And so th- this isn't easy, but... Uh, if you would turn to Matthew chapter seven in your Bibles, and before we, uh, before we get into this text, let me pray for us. And so bow with me and join us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have, uh, to hear from you, to hear from your word. We trust that this is the word of God. This is, these are your words, that your spirit wrote them, that these are the words of Christ. Uh, Specifically in this book, we trust in the authority of your word and its ability to transform us and save us and sanctify us. And we submit ourselves to humbly receive all the truth that is in it. I do pray for our hearts, uh, that the eyes of our hearts would be open, that we would be attentive. May your spirit uh, be with us and guide us during this time as we unveil uh, the truth that comes from uh, what's been written and shape the generations of believers from one decade and one century to the next. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So all this recent explosion on the evangelism ministry, it's been great. Uh, I love hearing about what's going on with people sharing the good news of Christ uh, all over in the Bay Area through the workplace, through the Cedar Crest ministry. And it's gotten me to particularly think about how I was first exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ because I'm not sure if many of you know I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, didn't grow up in a Christian community, and didn't grow up in a Christian country. I grew up as the third child uh, of non-believing, non-Christian parents, uh, 12 hours east, uh, which is in the Philippines, and there was no church in sight. Uh, didn't meet my first pastor until I was a teenager when we had moved to the United States. Uh, we had no Christians in our family. But there was some point, I guess, in the early 90s where this evangelist, I think you know his name, his name was Billy Graham, had an evangelistic, one of those evangelistic uh, outreach seminars, and he had gone to the Philippines, and he preached the gospel there. It was a one-time event. And a family friend heard the gospel, accepted it, shared it with my uncle, who heard the gospel and accepted it, and then shared it with my brother, who was in sixth grade at the time. And my brother, in his young age, accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and was saved. And again, we had no church, no pastor, uh, no one to shepherd us in our home. And when I think about what actually happened, it was – the providence of God's grace that preserved us through uh, the ministry of the word. But essentially, this is what happened. My brother accepted Christ, and every day we would come home from school. I would go and, and either do homework or play. He would go straight to the couch, take his backpack with him, pull out this black Bible that my uncle had given him, and read the word. For 30 minutes, 45 minutes, one hour. He was in sixth grade at the time and he would just sit on the couch and read and I would watch it. He didn't know I was watching, but I was watching him because I would think, what in the world is he reading? And not only would he read, but against my mother's wishes at night, he would tell me about what he was reading and why our religion was wrong, and mom found out. Mom said, you should never talk to JR about those kind of things again. And my brother was an obedient child, and so he kept telling me about Jesus Christ. I said he was obedient to Christ, not necessarily to mom. And so he would tell me what he was learning uh, in the evenings right before we went to sleep and even on the way to school. And I saw the transformation because as, as a young person, right, I was in first grade at the time. He was in sixth grade. And from one, he changed. Uh, he started actually being nice to me. And he fell in love with the word. And it was a genuine love for the word because he would read it on his own with no one's prompting. He would study it. And then he would tell me about it. And one of the books that he in particularly loved to read was the book of Matthew. And in particular, this section from chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he would read portions of that sermon to me at night. And all he would do was read and give a short explanation about what that passage meant. I think that's known as expository preaching or something like that from a sixth grader. But he would read it, and I would notice he's reading the words that are in red, because you have those red-letter Bibles where Christ's words are in red. And he would read it, and it was almost as if, at least this is how I felt, it was almost as if Jesus was physically in the room speaking to me. My brother's image seemed to disappear, and it was almost as if I was right there, right on that mountain, and I was seeing Jesus. I'm, I'm, I, didn't say, I, I didn't say I saw visions. I'm not, I'm not claiming anything of that sort, but it just felt that way because all he would do was read it with authority and say, this is what we've grown up believing, but this is what Jesus says, and so listen to what he says. And so every time I read the Sermon of the Mount, I still have flashbacks of my brother in our room reading these portions to me and me feeling shocked that I can't believe that I'm hearing what I'm hearing, whether or not I like what I'm hearing. And there was one particular evening where of all places we were in my sister's bedroom because at that time, I guess it was easier on school nights for all four of the siblings to sleep in the same bedroom because it was easiest to wake us up altogether. But <laughs> we were in my sister's bedroom. Uh There were two beds and uh, there was a mattress on the floor, and I was on the bed nearest to the door. And my brother was on the bed furthest away from the door towards the wall. And he had his black Bible open. He was reclined on the bed. And he read. I was in first grade. He was in sixth. He read Matthew 7, 13 through 14 to me. He didn't explain it. He just read it. And at that point, I understood exactly what that verse meant. I didn't react. I didn't respond. I didn't comment. I pretended like I wasn't paying attention. But as soon as he read those words, two verses, it went in my heart and it would haunt me for the rest of my life as a non-Christian because I knew whether or not I wanted it to be true that this was true. And when I did become a Christian, Later on in college, because that's how the word of God works. You hear it and it stays there and it does something to you. And when I was in college, I heard that very same passage preached by this man named Steve Lawson at the Resolve Conference. And that was one of the messages that catapulted me to to veer off from my, at that time, my ambition career path and to go into pastoral ministry. And this was the passage that he read. I turn to Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And it was that very last part that I just as a kid and as a young adult had such a difficult time dealing with. That the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. And what this passage does is Jesus unveils to us and these are the words of Christ. I did not write the book of Matthew. I wasn't smart enough to write the book of Matthew. I wasn't old enough to write the book of Matthew and no one here wrote it. Jesus said it, and it was recorded by men inspired by the Holy Spirit to remember what he said. Jesus here unveils what in the world is going on with global humanity today. What's happening with people today? Where are people headed? And when it comes to eternity, when it comes to the path that people are taking, when you look out at your community, your neighborhood, when you look at the region that you live in, wherever you're living, whether you're from Silicon Valley or outside of Silicon Valley, when you look at the people around you, when you look at the country that you live in, when you watch highlights of the World Cup later, which I'm sure many of you will, and you see the mass spectators there, the question to ask yourself that this passage actually answers is, what is going on with mass humanity Today And people are always trying to figure out what their goal of life is. What does God want for them? Well, the first thing you need to figure out is what's going on with the globe. When you figure out what's going on with people, when you figure out what the needs of the world are, you may actually figure out what your calling in life is. Jesus... Spoke these words in the longest sermon ever recorded in the Bible, the most comprehensive sermon on a number of different topics, and it was a shocking sermon. There is nothing minor, nothing secondary about the Sermon on the Mount. And you feel, just listen to, listen to portions of the sermon, because you actually feel Heaven and hell in the balance. And that's why every time my brother would read it to me, even as a sixth grader, however high or low his voice was at the time, and as a first grader listening to it, you cannot deny that every word here is weighty. Blessed are those, for instance, who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you are good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Jesus wasn't a light preacher. He didn't come to entertain people. If your right hand makes you stumble, he says in chapter 5, verse 29, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, pray this way. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven later in that chapter where neither moth nor rust destroy. Where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, and all these things will be added unto you. And then he gets to the section in chapter 7 where he starts to talk about more explicitly who is going to end up in heaven and who is going to end up in hell. And you can conjure up whatever imagination you want and convince yourself of whatever you want with regards to where people are going, but that doesn't change the truth. Because you and your emotions and your desires cannot alter what's already written here And when the king speaks, we listen and we submit and we do something about it. So know the reality of what's happening to people today with regards to journey, their journey to eternal destiny, so that you may find yourself in the path that leads to the right destination and help others do the same. And Jesus says, here's the main point of the sermon, is enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is the gate. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way. Repent from your sin. Believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Enter through the narrow gate. Go through Christ alone. There's only one way. And the reason why he says you need to enter through the narrow gate is because normally, instinctively, as people, we go where we see the vast majority of people going. We do what the vast majority of people do. That's just how we work as human beings. Someone said, if you want to see a whole crowd crank their head up, all you have to do is go to the front of the crowd and do this. And at some point, everyone else is going to do that. And therefore, the person in the back is going to do that as well. And I've heard people say that Starbucks has the worst quality coffee. And yet, why does Starbucks keep making money? Because people like me keep going there. And why do people like me keep going there? Because everybody else seems to go there. Left to ourselves, we will follow where the vast majority of people are going. And so Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. And as he explains this passage, if this doesn't give you a pulse for evangelism and Christian ministry, I'm not really, sh- not really sure what will. And here are two, this is your outline in your notes. If you're taking notes, if you have the bulletin in front of you, there are two questions that the passage answers. Question number one, what's happening with the vast majority of people in the world? And question number two, what is happening with a small minority of people in the world? Every hour, every hour, over 6,000 people in the world die and pass on to eternity. Every second, close to two people die and pass on to eternity. And it would do you good, whether or not you're prepared for it, to have it clear in your heart what is going on with people. And hopefully that would shape the way you live, the way you think, the way you treat people. So question number one, what is happening with a vast majority of people? And the answer is this. This is what Jesus says, is they're on the road to destruction. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter it. The gate is wide. If you drive through a gated community and you see two gates, one in the front and one in the back, and the one in the front is usually larger and wider, which one would you go through? If you don't want to work through insurance, right, to deal with your car, you go through the wider gate because wider gates are easier. They're more convenient to go through. It's instinctive. You have people go through two different gates, and the wider the gate, the more people are going to go through it and not just the gate. But Jesus says broad is the way hell apparently has an open door policy. The gate to hell, the entrance to the path that leads to hell in the eyes of most people is not scary. It's inviting. The gate is wide wide. And the way is broad. There's space. You can take stuff with you. No restrictions. It's agreeable. It's pleasant. What's the difference between writing first class and writing coach? Space. Why is first class such a fun experience? Even if you don't like airplanes. Especially in Emirates Airlines. Where you have a whole suite in there first class because there's space and then you go to coach you breathe and you end up touching the person next to you we as people like space we like big things that's why with city planning right the more developed countries have broader gates because it's easier no matter what mode of transportation, whether you're driving a car, you're driving a truck, you're driving a bus, you're riding a horse, you're riding an elephant, you're in a dog sled, you're in your dad's shoulders. It's always easier to tread through a broad path. The broader the road, the more people it fits, the less restrictions, the less congestion. You can take more things with you. So the road to hell says this. Don't worry, there's plenty of room for everybody. All views, all religions, all life choices are welcome on this road. So come on in. Now, what are the eternal consequences of walking down the more instinctive road? And you have to remember that you as a human being by instinct left to your own desires will walk down that path. And Jesus says, the gate is wide and broad is the way and it leads to destruction. Specifically, when it says in the Greek, it says the destruction. It's not just talking about a type of calamity. It's the destruction. Eternal punishment in hell, the final complete destruction of all human hope where there is a total, complete, Eternal absence of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, absent of God's grace, absent of God's love, absent of God's mercy, absent of God's provision. And the only thing that people there are experiencing eternally is God's wrath and judgment in eternal torment and fire. We know that because that's how the Bible describes hell. And what is the proportion of humanity That is currently going down that road. Jesus doesn't give the politically correct answer. Because disciples are not made by political correctness. Diplomacy doesn't make disciples. Truth does. Jesus says there are many. Who are entering it. Many. The Greek word for many means many. <laughs> it means it means the majority, not the minority. It can mean most. The road to hell looks so pleasurable. It's so easy to walk down. It's downhill. It's smooth. And there are a lot of people going there that as a human being you feel like sometimes you can't help but want to walk the same path. I thought of this a couple years back when um, Austin here and I, I'm not sure why we did this, but in January 2016, we decided to run a half marathon. And I'm thinking back, why did we do that? What was the value of that? Why did we do it? I don't know. I wanted to do it. I asked him to do it. He did it. Funky experience. Um, but anyway, and we're there, we're, we're, we're about to start, and we're in Fremont, it's pouring rain. But we're there anyway. And we're actually trying to run for time. And not only that, but it's uphill, downhill, it's muddy, there was a point where I felt like I was snowboarding because it was so muddy. And then on, and I, I'm exhausted. I, I've, I, I was exhausted from the point we left the starting line. And then we get to mile 12 and there's nobody there, and it's it's hot, it's really hot. And we're in the Coyote Hills in Fremont, and there's now a fork in the road, because there's a hill going up that way, and I see a narrow, narrow, narrow path going up. And then I see this nice, broad path going downhill, and there were a bunch of people at the bottom. And so I told myself, I convinced myself, this is the right way to go. This is mile 12 of 13. So I go down the broad path for no other reason than it was easier and more convenient to do so. And I get there. I see all the people there running, and I'm thinking, of course, this is the right way because everybody else is here. And I see a volunteer there, and I just double-checked, and I said, ma'am, this is the way for the half marathon, correct? And she said, no, this is the 5K race. You went the wrong way. Yours is all the way up there. The interesting thing is, so I got lost in the race on mile 12 and thought about the narrow gate and the broad path in that one. The interesting thing is a couple months later, I did another race, and I got lost in that one as well in Fremont, and my excuse for that one was on mile five of six, there was a a girl who passed me, and she went straight instead of turning left because it was a broader path and I followed her and I got lost and I went home and told the staff and uh, Pastor Bob Douglas looked at me and said, uh-huh, the woman told you to do it. Uh, so apparently if you want to be holy, you want to be sanctified, you want to understand your Bible and how it applies, run some races and get lost. Uh, but. All that to say, it's natural for people to want to go down the road of hell because it's inviting, there's an open-door policy, it's pleasurable, it's easy, and it leads you straight to eternal torment. And the sad thing is, people have absolutely no idea that they're going there. Jesus says, Matthew twenty-two, fourteen: 14, Many are called, but few are chosen. Many hear, many hear the gospel, if you want to obey him, many hear that Christ is the only way and only a handful actually submit to him. And then he says in John 59 to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The irony of all this is that human beings instinctively do what they can to preserve their life. And yet, mass humanity is currently down the road to destroy themselves. And it's not because they haven't been warned. It's simply because the road that leads to hell is a pleasurable road. And I want you to think about this now. This is a reality check. When you look out into the masses, wherever you are, whether you're stuck in traffic, I mean, that's, if you want to look into the masses, that's great. Just start in South San Jose at 7 o'clock in the morning and drive north and you will be trapped in the masses. And when you look at it in traffic, what are you seeing? When you're at the airport and you see masses of people, when you go to a foreign country like India and you're in the marketplace and you see masses of people there or the Philippines or Japan where you see masses of people walking by the Shinto temple or you go to New York and you see masses of people walking down back and forth doing what they want. When you go to a public high school and you look at the student quad, when you go to a university, and you go to the Central Quad where all the students are hanging out, when you go and spend time with your extended families and big family gatherings, when you go to the park, when you go to the gym, when you go to the mall, what are you seeing? In front of you are waves and waves of people going straight to a slaughterhouse. And they have no idea that they're going there because from their perspective, they're living life to the fullest. Just think about it. Every day, every day, thousands or how many people die thinking that they'll wake up in a palace and they wake up in a sewer Jesus says that there are those who hear the word of God and receive it, even with joy. Parable of the four soils here. But because of the trials of life, they wilt and go back down the Broadway. And then there are other people who hear the word and receive it with joy. But then when they see the pleasures of the world are lured away back into the Broadway. Because all people are trying to do is fulfill the American dream. And here's the truth. That the American dream, if you pursue it, will lead you straight to an eternal nightmare. Now you have to ask yourself, If you here today are living exclusively for you, what you want, your pleasures, if your desire and philosophy of life is to do what's most convenient, to do what's most pleasurable, to make the choices that have no consequences of affliction, to achieve your dreams, to achieve your desires, how are you so sure that you are not walking down that road? And for the rest of us who are on the narrow path, the question is, do you care? I would hope that you don't look and hear a passage like this and say, well, at least that's not me. Does it bother you every day? when you look at people out in your community and the reality is most of them are walking down to destruction and have no idea that it's happening and what are you going to do about it? What does Christ say to do about it? The truth is, for the vast majority of people, they're walking straight to hell and don't know that they're doing it. They're enjoying the ride And a small minority of people are left to hopefully make a change. So what's happening then? Here's question number two. What's happening then to a small minority of people? These are Christ's words. He says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Again, the Greek word for few means And the English word for few means few. It means small. He says small is the gate. In other words, it's hard to get into the gate that leads to eternal life. How do you get through that gate? It's not through your own work. It's through repenting from your sin and believing, placing your faith. And the person and work of Jesus Christ alone to save you and following him, devoting yourself to him. And it is not easy to do that because although it is a free gift, it costs you everything. The passage that was just read from the scripture reading here, whoever does not deny himself and take up his cross, give up his own life, cannot be my disciple. It is hard to do that. That's why it says small is the gate. Go back to the airport analogy. Have you ever been through airport security nowadays? The gate is small. It's hard to take anything through it, especially after what happened with 9-11. And I remember that when I, when I was flying back and forth and I took with me, decided to take with me a brand new jar of Skippy peanut butter. I'm thinking, this is not a liquid. they let me take it. And I'm the only one in security. This is 5 o'clock in the morning. Of course I'm going to be able to take it. And I walk through, put all my stuff through, and the lady says, I'm sorry, you can't take this one with you. And I'm thinking, you just want to eat it. You're tired. <laughs> the gate that leads to eternal life is just like an airport security gate. You have to give up a lot to get through it. Not by your own works. But you still have to give up everything. And it says, narrow is the way. And the Greek word for narrow there does not mean the English word narrow. This is a, a an unusual translation. The Greek word for narrow is the word thlebo, which means suffering, distressing, afflicting. It carries the idea of immense, immense pressure. In other words, the road to eternal life is filled with pain, it's filled with anguish, it's filled with suffering, it's filled with pressure, it's filled with affliction, and ultimately, those who are on it will experience persecution. Jesus said that. Whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and therefore, people left to themselves and to their own desires will instinctively avoid it. That's why Jesus says when you see the gate and you see the way, you see this tiny gate and you see this uphill path that looks hard to get through, enter it because you may not want to enter it, but it is the path that leads to life, eternal life, contrary to eternal destruction where you experience forever the life-giving power of the Spirit. You're in fellowship with God for eternity. There's no curse. There's no death. There's no sin. There's no pain. There's no hardship. And what Jesus is saying is, choose the path to life, even if you don't want to choose it, because even though life is going to be hard and afflicting here, you may not get what you want. You may not be fulfilled. Your dreams may not be accomplished in this world, but if you keep treading that path, you will inherit eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son of God will not perish, but have eternal life and this is the heartbreaking reality what proportion of humanity is currently on that road and some would say what proportion of the evangelical visible church is even on this road and what one pastor had the guts to say is what proportion of ministers are even on this road He says few, few who find it, not just less, but few. It's like when my parents would tell us growing up, if you decide to pursue a career as a professional athlete or a professional artist, just know that the percentage of people who make it is few. Therefore, don't do it. But Jesus says, the path that leads to life, few find it. Not because they're not good enough to find it, but because they keep trying to avoid it. And unlike, new ones here in your Bible, unlike the road that leads to hell, which many enter, this one says there are few who find it. Different word there, find. In other words, people don't just stumble upon it. People don't just float the way up to heaven. They have to be shown the way. They have to find it. They have to stay on it. And the way to stay on that road is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Devote yourself to him and endure all the suffering that comes when you're on that road. You don't work your way. You don't have to qualify with your own righteousness to get on that road. But you do have to be willing to endure all the difficulties that come and the consequences that come with taking a narrow path as opposed to a broad one. You know what this explains? This explains why you have seen so many people in your life profess faith in Jesus Christ only to fall away five 10, 15 years later. Why is it? I first heard this in high school and it scared me to death. Why is it that apparently 85% of high school students who profess faith in Christ go to college and fall away from the faith less than four years later? Why do so many people end up getting baptized? A few years later, say they don't want anything to do with church. Why was it that the person who discipled me in college, who led my Bible study, this day is posting things on Facebook about why he hates the Bible and hates Jesus? Because the way of the road is suffering. That's what Jesus said. And it's not to say, let me make a clarifying statement here. It's not to say that you're supposed to look for suffering. If you have a choice between Alexander's and Denny's, for the sake of holiness, you don't have to choose Denny's. (laughs) If I had a choice between watching tennis and watching football, I don't have to be holy and say, I'll therefore watch football. And you're thinking, of course you would. No, I'm a tennis player. (laughs) But that said, okay, you don't have to look for it. Your job is to believe and obey, to trust and obey, but, If your entire life is spent simply trying to avoid suffering and running away from suffering every time it finds you, then you have to ask yourself, are you on the narrow path? Because it doesn't matter if you're in America or if you're in Uganda. The path to life is a narrow road with affliction because Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit says, for it to you has been granted Philippians one 29 for to you. It has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering comes with repentance and faith and the most foolish and the most tragic and the most heartbreaking thing that a person can do is choose pleasure. And in the process, give away life when Jesus is offering life the worst thing you can do is reject it. And at the same time, nothing is worth rejoicing more than to see a person turn away from the broad path and walk up the narrow path with perseverance all the way to the end. Heaven rejoices when how many sinners repent? Three? One. Don't take for granted your own salvation. If you are here and walking in the truth, believing in Christ, don't think that just happened. You were there because God providentially worked out his grace for you to hear the gospel and gave you the Holy Spirit to open up your heart to receive it and gave you the courage to walk down the path of life even though the rest of the world has threatened to reject you. Every person's salvation, because it doesn't happen often, is worth rejoicing and it's worth fighting for. So if what is happening to the vast majority is happening and what's happening to a small minority is happening, then what's the hope then for us? The hope is this, that God in his sovereignty, call me a Calvinist or call me a Bible believing preacher God in his sovereignty has elected a few from this world who, although today may still be currently walking down the road to destruction. God has sovereignly selected to save and to bring to himself. And because Christ died for those few, no matter what they're doing today, Not the gates of hell, not anyone will be able to snatch them out of Christ's hand because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so what does Paul say? What is the hope? He says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Why do you suffer in this life? What's the whole point of being a Christian? Why are you here? You labor for the sake of those who are chosen. 2 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 10 so that they may attain the eternal life which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So what are you doing about it? There was a student that I had, a young student in middle school, who once sent me a text message saying, I don't think people really believe in the conscious torment in hell, even if they think they do. Because if any Christian knew someone was going to hell, wouldn't they do anything to stop that? What is your role as a parent if you have children? Raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teach them not to love the broad way Warn them about the broad way. Teach them that the harder path leads to righteousness and encourage them to walk there because you yourself are on there and you are a testimony of God's grace that walking down the narrow path leads to life and therefore you're encouraging them to do the same thing. Why do we have pastors? To entertain you? To give you a story every week? To study all week and work one day a week? Is that what we do? Or is a pastor's job to herald the message, to stand at the cliff and wait for the people who are coming there and to preach the message that says, don't go down that path, go that way to herald the truth of God. And for the people who turn around, who repent and walk that way to spend the rest of their lives and the rest of their ministry, shepherding people to stay on the narrow path, because sin can discourage people to going backwards. Hence. A pastor is a shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God to stay the course so that none of them may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's the goal of the church? In that same sermon, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. We're supposed to be visible. We're not a prairie dog community that just interacts with each other and is afraid to interact with the world. We are the church. The world's supposed to see us. Let so that when they see your good works as your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That is your purpose in life what is the goal of life what is the goal of your labor two things stop people on their tracks who are going on the broadway and encourage people to stay on the narrow way if they're already on that path and the hard the hard reality as jesus says this is the harvest is plentiful the day of judgment is coming but the workers are few But it's not over yet. A person can spend the rest of their life on the road that leads to destruction. And at the very last minute, with their very last breath, can turn around and say, remember me. You remember who that person was? The thief on the cross. You live for that. When Paul says, Fight the good fight of faith. What is he fighting for? I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Those who were chosen. You don't know who those people are. For all you know, they could be the worst sinners. They could be in prison. They can be on death row. But you don't know. God knows. And you labor and you strive to admonish every man and teach every man with wisdom so that one day you may present those people holy and blameless before their savior and lead the sheep back to the shepherd. Enter through the narrow gate and do everything you can that is entrusted to your power to encourage people to go with you. Leonard Ravenhill wrote in his book Why Revival Tarries, the story of Charlie Peace who was a convicted criminal in England and put on death row. And he writes this. Charlie Peace was a criminal. Laws of God or man, curbed him not. Finally, the law caught up with him and he was condemned to death. On the fatal morning in jail in England, he was taken on the death walk. And before him went the prison chaplain. Routinely and sleepily reading some Bible verses. The criminal touched the preacher and asked what he was reading. The consolations of religion was the reply. Charlie Peace was shocked at the way he professionally read about hell. For could a man be so unmoved under the very shadow of the scaffold as to lead a fellow human there and yet dry-eyed, Read of a pit that has no bottom in which this fellow must fall? Could this preacher believe the words that there is an eternal fire that never consumes its victims and yet slide over the phrase with a tremor? Is a man human at all who can say with no tears, you will be eternally dying and yet never know the relief that death brings? All this was too much for Charlie Peace. And so he turned to the preacher, to the chaplain, and said this. Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Let your life count for one thing. That people may enter through the narrow gate and find life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We don't decide what truth is. Uh, We can only be exposed to it and submit to it. And I pray that as we understand what's happening in the world, we rejoice in the fact that there are a few who are walking down the way to life. We rejoice in our own salvation. But we pray that our labors would count towards the eternal life of many. Uh, It's heartbreaking to hear what's happening to so much of humanity, what's happening to the globe. But we ask that you would bless our labors that they would count give us give us the courage to share about Christ give us the courage to evangelize and we trust in your work and those people who you have chosen for yourself and let our labors count towards their salvation may we labor and strive in the power that you've given us to do so and it's in Jesus name we pray amen